Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. 511 through 6, 3. Again, God's word. Hebrews 5, beginning verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not again laying a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith towards God, and instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us again pray. Childhood, kids, babies. What comes to your mind when you hear these words? Well, children are one of those mixed bag sort of blessing. That is, kids are a terrific good and blessing from the Lord, But this time or season is not meant to last. Kind of like a pumpkin spice latte, childhood needs to be seasonal. Indeed, it's a blast to play and run around with the toddler, but you don't want to do the same thing when they're 12 years old. Holding a newborn is amazingly precious, but heaven forbid you're still changing diapers when they're age six. Yes, childhood is designed to be a passing blessing. Thus, kids, they just generally want to grow up. And if you say to a 30-year-old who's still acting like a kid, this is not a virtue. Indeed, when you are a kid, enjoy being a kid. But when you grow up, you need to quit childhood. To say to an adult, you're a child. Grow up. Stop being a baby. These are cutting words of rebuke. And yet this is precisely what Hebrews does with the saints that he is writing to, which is a warning to us to persevere in the maturity of Christ. Nevertheless, in order to appreciate this call to maturity, we need clarity on a pervasive theme in the book of Hebrews about perfection or maturity. As was just mentioned in five, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, Our Lord was confirmed perfect by what he suffered as a priest for us. And this word for perfection is the same one used for maturity in the passage before us this morning, and it's part of a theme within this epistle. So then how is Hebrews thinking about this perfection slash maturity? Well, the author uses it to refer to the better new covenant Reality accomplished by Christ's redemptive work, and he does so in contrast to the inferior state of the old covenant of law. Thus, in the upcoming chapters, it will say, the law perfected nothing. Animal sacrifices were incapable of perfecting the conscience of the worshiper. 
Yet by the single offering of Jesus, he perfected those who are being sanctified. Additionally, the Old Testament saints could not be made perfect apart from us. And in our New Testament worship, we come to the heavenly Mount Zion to the spirits of the righteous ones made perfect. Therefore, this maturity slash perfection theme highlights the heavenly redemption earned by Jesus for us. Jesus was qualified as perfect by his suffering and priestly ministry. Christ makes us perfect by his blood to inaugurate the new covenant, and this perfection is a foretaste of the heavenly glory kept for us. Thus, maturity slash perfection is a covenantal category. It expresses the covenantal contrast between the types and shadows of the old covenant and the everlasting reality of the new. And this feeds ideally into the burden of this epistle where the congregation is attempted to return to the synagogue. These saints are considering going back to the economy of the old covenant under Moses. The new covenant doesn't seem so great to them, so they lust for the time-tested traditions of the old covenant. So this covenantal dimension to perfection or maturity is key to the warning of this passage before us. As he says, about this we have much to say. This refers to the suffering of Jesus as high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The author has much ink to spill on the Melchizedek priesthood of Jesus And pretty soon here, he's going to spend four chapters on this topic. Also, the Melchizedek order of Jesus is foundational to the new covenant. It's the fount of our eternal salvation. Yet this subject is not an easy one. As he remarks, it's hard to explain. The Melchizedek Christ is a truth that is complex, intricate, and elaborate. The priesthood of our Savior is like a large, beautiful mosaic. At a distance, it's a gorgeous whole truth, but you can zoom in to absorb all the details of each pretty title or tile that makes it up. Like the Bible itself, the Melchizedek office of Jesus is for adults, which is an issue as the saints, as he says next, are dull of hearing. Or more literally, they have lazy ears. Sloth and dullness cover over their hearing like a bad case of cauliflower ears. Now, of course, this doesn't mean a failed hearing test by the audiologist, but it's a moral category. Lazy ears belong to the same Old Testament imagery as an uncircumcised heart, a flint forehead, or blind eyes. It is spiritual stubbornness that dulls one's senses to God and his word. The hearing of these saints, then, is spiritually obtuse. Thick, foolish earwax is deeply impacted in their ears. And so, to give them a good ear cleaning, the author gets aggressive with his language. He says, by this time you should be teachers, but instead you need someone to tutor you. Your grade isn't even a D minus, so an emergency tutor needs to be phoned in. And what do they need to be retaught? It's the basic elements 
of the oracles of God. They require a re-education in the elementary principles. Moreover, the oracles of God here is a distinctive reference to the Old Testament. That is, he needs to bring them back so that they can retake the kindergarten of the Old Testament. You can taste the bitter criticism in this. The congregation wants to return to the rituals of the Old Testament as being better than the New Covenant. They flaunt being experts of the Old Testament, so he pokes them, but you need Old Testament preschool again. Additionally, as we will see in chapter 8, being a teacher is a benefit of the New Covenant's outpouring of the Spirit. Thus, there's again a covenantal contrast. They should be spirit-filled teachers of the New Covenant, but but instead, they're still pre-K students of the Old Testament. If someone has a bloated head, thinking themselves so smart, nothing pops it quite as efficiently as exposing them as childish dolts. And the author keeps up his sharp pricks. Next, he says, you need milk, not solid food. He calls them babies who need to go back to the bottle. Their digestive systems can't handle the grilled meat and roasted vegetables of Christ's priesthood. Rather, they need to be suckled again at the bottle. And with this, the author employs the motif of immaturity to shame the saints in order to make them realize what it's like to return to the Old Testament era, to go back to Judaism. His focus isn't on personal maturity per se. Rather, he's coloring going back to the synagogue as reverting back to being a baby. And he's milking the metaphor. You need mama's milk again, and milk drinkers are infants. Babies can't stomach proper food. They can't digest the better flavors of meats and rich sauces and fine wines. Thus, they are incapable of digesting the word of righteousness or righteous doctrine. Now, it's not completely clear what he means by this phrase, but it seems to have the force of a word or doctrine that brings righteousness. It imparts real righteousness. Now, this phrase doesn't seem to be overly specific, as if he's only thinking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. Rather, more holistically, this is the gift of Christ's righteousness that then enables us to live uprightly by faith. Yet this word of righteousness does have the connotation of true righteousness. This is grown-up righteousness, mature, substantial, meaty, and lasting. Thus, this phrase is put in direct parallel to solid food over against the 1% milk. The polemical edge, then, is felt sharply. The Old Testament, with all its laws, is surely where righteousness is found. But the author counters, nope, that's milk food. Meaty righteousness comes not from the law, but from the word of the new covenant. Thus, the author is lining up, in contrast, what belongs to the two covenants. Within the old covenant... Lies, lazy ears, needing to be tutored at a kindergarten level, being a milk drinker, inability to digest solid food, and being a child. 
while to the new covenant belongs the complex truth of Christ's priesthood, being filled by the Spirit to teach solid food and the word of righteousness. And he continues the comparison. He says solid food is for the mature, for the perfect. Again, he's playing off the imagery of maturity versus immaturity, adult versus infancy. Yet this maturity lies in the perfection of the new covenant wrought by Jesus. This then encourages not so much for them to just act like adults, but rather to find mature perfection in the new covenant over against going back to the synagogue. Hence, where where he painted immaturity as a shameful thing, he glosses up maturity as a desirable beauty. As he goes on, the twosome's delicacy of substantial food is for the perfect. Those pureed, mushy peas, those are for kids. But the adults of the room get fried branzino with saffron risotto and a medley of mushrooms. Moreover, the perfect slash mature are those who have senses trained due to maturity. The imagery here is one of trained taste buds. Like a super taster, the mature can tease out every flavor and texture in the dish. Like a sommelier, their nose and tongue can pick out whiffs of sandalwood, toffee, dried plum, and aged leather. Of course, though, these faculties are actually mental and spiritual. These are a spiritual scent of smell to pick out the truth the moral ear to hear the distinct notes within the symphony of the gospel and wise eyes to spot each shade of glory in the new covenant. Particularly, as he says, this is the mature skill to distinguish good from evil. And with this line, the author taps into a robust Old Testament theme. That is, in the Old Testament, young children were described as being unable to reject the bad and choose the good. They had not yet developed the moral discernment to understand bad from good. Children yet uh, possess this acumen. But where kids lack this, such sensitivity between good and evil was actually the crowning virtue of the king. Thus Solomon, when he requested for the Lord to give him wisdom, it was wisdom to distinguish the bad from the good. The woman of Tekoa, she praised David as being like an angel of God, able to understand everything to discern good from bad. Finally, in Genesis 3, the serpent enticed Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit so that her and her hubby would be like God to discriminate good from bad. Thus, sophisticated discernment wasn't just a talent of adulthood, but it's also the highest expression of a divine virtue, a sharing in the wisdom from above. The astute spiritual palate is able to pick the evil flavors from the good ones, and this is respectable and noble. While being an immature adult who lacks this perception is shameful and disgraceful. And clearly, the saints that the author is writing to are lacking these skills, for they find savory the Old Testament types, 
And they're gagging on the New Testament glories of Christ. They designate the inferior things of the Old Testament as better, and they judge Christ's new covenant work as undesirable. This is the opposite. This is like a toddler trying to grab a burning candle. They can't recognize that the alluring flame will burn them. Thus, the author dresses the saints down for lacking this adult new covenant discernment. And he coaxes them to embrace such refined judgment within the mature perfection of the new covenant. Hence, he tells them explicitly to leave the elementary doctrine. And he summons them to press on towards maturity. This verse, though, verse 1 of chapter 6, needs some teasing out for some full clarity. First, this mention of the elementary doctrine aligns with the phrase, the basic principles of God's oracles, back in verse 12. Moreover, he also writes the doctrine of the Christ. That is, he is not referring to Jesus personally here, but to the office of Messiah. This means that these elementary doctrines are the Old Testament blurry types of the Messiah. We are told to move beyond the simple messianic teachings of the Old Testament, and this makes much better sense of the verse. For on first impression, this line is kind of troublesome. What do you mean, move beyond the basis of the basics of Jesus? Nowhere else in Scripture are we called to mature beyond Jesus. Indeed, we never progress past Jesus. And in fact, this entire book of Hebrews is a sustained exhortation for us to be more deeply rooted in Jesus by faith and devotion. Thus, just as God's oracles in verse 12 was an Old Testament reference, so here he's speaking about the elementary and shadowy basics about the Messiah in the Old Testament without the light of Jesus. Covenantal contrast is still in the forefront. We mature past the Old Testament basics of the Messiah, which lack the clarifying light of New Testament revelation. Secondly, he calls us to go on to maturity, or again, perfection. Yet this verb of movement here is in the passive. It's a divine passive. Literally, let us be carried on unto perfection. The active agent here is the power of God's grace. To remain in the shadows is to resist God's spirit. It hardens the heart and makes lazy the ears against God's work inside of us. While to look to the perfection of the new covenant is to have the arms of our Heavenly Father carry us into the perfect maturity of his Son, Jesus. Therefore, verse 1 here exhorts us to leave the simple shadows of the old covenant without the knowledge of Christ, and then to let our faith be born into the new covenant realities by grace. And this is essential so that, as he says next, the foundation doesn't have to be laid again. This means if our faith remains under the law of the old covenant, 
then we destroy the foundation. But if we mature into Jesus Christ, then the foundation does not have to be laid all over again. The key being that if the congregation goes back to the synagogue, if they give up on Jesus as the Messiah to embrace the law of the Old Covenant, then they take dynamite to the foundation. You cannot go back to the Old Covenant without demolishing the foundation. And what is this foundation? Well, he lists for us six stones that comprise this foundation. First, there is repentance from dead works and faith in God. Now, dead works makes another appearance later on in chapter 9, where it says the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works, which could not be done by the animal blood of the old covenant. Dead works, then, are not just sinful deeds, but they also include obedient works that can merit nothing. In Paul's language, they're the works of the law. Our best deeds under the law still fall very short and earn us nothing. To repent of these is then to count as rubbish our best selves and then to cast ourselves upon the ideal merit of Christ. Next, there's faith in God, which is the only instrument by which eternal salvation comes to us. To take a sledgehammer to faith puts us back under the law as debtors to keep it all. Nothing is more hazardous. The next two stones of this foundation are teachings on washings and the laying on of hands. Now, these two are a bit more difficult to pin down. Washings here, or more literally baptisms, likely cover how the Old Testament washings have passed away and how our baptism in our baptisms ingraft us into Christ. The laying on of hands could refer to the priest laying his hands on the sacrifice or the roll of hands in ordination. Either way, both of these are best taken as Old Testament types fulfilled in Christ. In the New Covenant, we are not obligated to ritual washings as our baptisms take us from being dead to being alive in Christ. Likewise, since our sins were laid upon Jesus, he lays his hands upon us to heal us from our depravity and to fill us with the Spirit. Finally, the last two pieces of this foundation are resurrection and eternal judgment. Now, surely, resurrection was part of the faith of the Old Testament saints. But until Christ's resurrection, their understanding of resurrection was yet a bit fuzzy. Our Lord's resurrection brings into mature perfection the glorious doctrine and hope of the bodily resurrection. Also essential to the clarity of the new covenant is the truth of eternal judgment. As we learn that Jesus Christ is also the judge on the final day of the Lord. In Christ is our only deliverance from everlasting wrath, And to be outside of Christ is to suffer those eternal flames. Therefore, these six doctrines form the ground level of the new covenant and our life within it. And yet to go back to the old covenant law and animal sacrifices 
tosses all these six things back in the dumpster. And if these truths perish from our faith, then we are left back under the law and imprisoned to the curse of the law, left to our own obedience and only with worthless animal blood. For this reason, the author then states, this we will do, which does refer back to being carried into mature perfection. We need to depart the Old Testament shadows of the law and be taken into the new covenant perfections so that the the foundation is not destroyed. And this is what the author will do for us, Lord willing. Thus from here all the way until chapter 11, the book of Hebrews waxes long about the inferiority of the old covenant and the betterness of Christ and his new covenant so that none of us are tempted to apostatize back to the synagogue. The words of this inspired letter are meant as God's grace to hold us in the arms of Christ's perfection. That glorious doctrine, the righteous doctrine of Melchizedek and Jesus, feeds us then with solid food to keep us flourishing in maturity, in the perfection of the heavenly new covenant. For like the congregation of this epistle, the temptations nowadays to return to the old covenant are still numerous and they're varied. Indeed, the number of erroneous teachings in the broader church that want to pull us back under the law is high. To just name a few, there's the era of theonomy, new perspectives on Paul, Catholicism, social gospel movements, Seventh-day Adventism, liberalism, Judaism, and basic liberal uh, legalism. Yes, all of these and more, in one way or another, seek to make us babies again. They diminish the priestly work of Christ, and they elevate the necessity of our good works to be accepted by God. But brothers and sisters, Do not be lured by these foundational destroying errors. Instead, may you recognize them for what they are, trying to put you in spiritual diapers again, to stick you back on the bottle. Rather, may we remain committed to the maturity of Christ, to the perfection of the new covenant, founded solely upon the righteous merit and shed blood of Jesus Christ, as our Melchizedek high priest. Yes, the clarity of Christ and his work grants us the discernment to distinguish between the dangers of going back to the old covenant and recognizing the perfections of the new. Moreover, dear saints, may you take comfort in the fact that the robust gospel of Christ's high priesthood is the grace of God to you for your hearts and your souls that picks you up and carries you to the very throne of grace so that you might receive mercy and help in just the way you need it. Moreover, as we rest and delight in the work of Jesus, then the love of God is bearing you from maturity to perfection, from new covenant to heaven, from grace to grace, and all for the praise of our Father's holy name.
praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.